0: There's no way that I can adequately express my thanksgiving to God for the great privilege that I have this morning to bring His word to you in preaching. Uh, it is a testimony of His grace and power at work. And I know that grace and power has come through the prayers of this church. Over the last couple of weeks, months, as Don and I have struggled with unexpected health issues, this church has loved us in a thousand ways, and I can't begin to even understand, much less try to communicate to you all of those ways. But nothing, nothing has been greater than your prayers for me and asking the Lord to help and His. His answer of those prayers. So, I praise God for the privilege of being in this pulpit this morning. And I know that it's because of His grace and power that are at work through the prayers of this church. I was looking back over my journal and notes and it was just a little over a year ago that we began our study through the book of Romans. And as I was contemplating where we should go next in our Sunday morning expositions of God's Word, uh, Romans kept coming to mind. I had just finished 40 years of pastoral ministry the fall before. And for that and other, other reasons, it just seemed right that God was leading us to study this book. And, and so we launched that study In January of 2019. And though it hasn't been as consistent as I had intended or hoped for. I still believe that God has many good things he intends for us to learn. As we plod on through our study of this magisterial letter. Today we're going to take up where we left off at our last time together in this book which is Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Romans 4, 9 through 12. That's our text. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, you'll see it on page 941. 941. And while you're turning to that passage and your copy of God's Word, uh, let me just briefly recap where we've been and how Romans is laid out for us, at least up to the passage that we're looking at Today, in the first 15 verses of chapter 1, Paul gives his pretty standard introduction and greeting to the church at Rome. He knew the church, knew specific people in the church, though he had never visited the church, at least not yet. He will eventually, but not yet at this time when he writes the letter. And so he speaks about his desires to come be with them. And then in verse 16, verse 17 of chapter 1, he announces the theme of the whole letter, what he intends to write, because he wrote this letter in a rather leisurely way, which wasn't always the case, if you know about the letters of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Sometimes he wrote from prison, sometimes he wrote when uh, he was uh, being uh, hunted down and, and had to be moved from one place to another. But he writes this letter when he has months of leisure to reflect upon the things he wants to communicate. And so we have in Romans the closest thing to a systematic treatment of the gospel of God's grace, and he announces that in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he says in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So that's going to be the theme of the letter. And then in verse 18 of chapter 1, he immediately launches in to teaching about sin and unrighteousness. Why we need righteousness. Because we have turned against God and we've suppressed the truth of God. And as a result, God's wrath is being revealed against all unrighteousness that exists in the world. Unrighteousness that by nature you and I participate in. We came into this world unrighteous. And we continue in unrighteousness until God in His grace opens our eyes to see our sin and turn from sin and turn to Christ, that we might have the righteousness that is found in Him as we trust Him, the righteousness that is by faith. So from chapter 1 verse 18 down through verse 20 of chapter 3, Paul elaborates the universality of sin. Jew, Gentile, everybody has sinned. Everybody. nobody's the exception which means everybody by nature is under the wrath of God because of our lack of righteousness, because of our sin. And then in verse 21 of chapter 3, he turns a corner. He, he set the table by showing the need for righteousness because all have sinned. And then in verse 21 of chapter 3, he says, but now there is righteousness revealed from God. It's not righteousness according to the law, not anything you can do to earn it. But it's the righteousness that comes by faith. What he announced in verse 16 of chapter 1. It's the righteousness that God gives to all who believe. And he begins in verse 21 of chapter 3. All the way down to the end of chapter 5. To elaborate how this righteousness comes to sinners who believe. That righteousness that is granted to us. Is at the heart of the justification that sinners have before God. When we turn from sin and trust Jesus. And so that's where we are in chapter 4, in the midst of our study of this letter. Paul is elaborating the idea of being justified by God's grace as we trust in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. In the first eight verses of chapter 4, Paul cites Abraham as the classic Old Testament example and David as an Old Testament spokesman for this doctrine of justification by grace received through faith. If you look at verses 3, 4, and 5, you'll see how Abraham's testimony is held up as this great example of being made right with God. And he was made right with God, not by works, not by anything he did. He was a great man, and the Jews esteemed him as such. But Paul wants to make clear, it wasn't works that got Abraham right with God but rather it was faith. Look at verse 3 of Romans 4 before we get to our text. Paul writes, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then in verses 6, 7, and 8, Paul quotes David from Psalm number thirty-two to further buttress his case to show that God justifies not on the basis of works but on the basis of faith. Listen to how Paul brings David in in verse six, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. It's, see, this is this is great news. There is righteousness available. The righteousness that God requires, it's available. And it's available not through works, not through anything we can do. It's available as we trust in what God has provided in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so Paul goes on then and quotes Psalm 32 where David writes, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin to be justified before God is to be counted righteous in God's sight it is to have your sins completely forgiven it is to have your sins no longer charged against you things that you have done that apart from God's grace you would have to give an account for by God's grace and the righteousness that he credits to you through faith in Jesus Christ are not charged against you. So this is a great blessing, David says. Well, the question is, who gets in on this blessing before God? Exactly how does a person become justified before the Lord? Well, Paul has answered this question many times already in the chapters leading up to our text this morning. We've seen this in our previous studies. Today, we're going to see how he answers it again by returning to the example of Abraham. And he chooses Abraham to make the point that the only way that anyone can be made right with God is by trusting in the provision God has given us in Christ. After quoting David's declaration of blessings that come in justification, Paul raises the question of who this blessing is for. And listen to the way that he answers it. That's our text. Romans chapter 4, verses 9-12. through 12. So follow along as I read it out loud. Keep the word open before you. Because we're just going to walk through these verses of Scripture knowing that it's God's word to us this morning. Is this believing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised? Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. In other words, Paul answers the question by saying this, justification belongs to anyone who believes. Anybody who takes God at His word. Anybody who acknowledges what God says is true and the way they have been living is false and turns from that falsity to the truth that is in Jesus Christ and bows before Jesus as Lord in faith. Those are the people whom God justifies. Paul makes this point in the passage, and he does so by reminding us of the way that God justified Abraham. And let me just point out something that's incidental to our purposes this morning, but it is illustrative of how we ought to read the Bible. Paul quotes Psalm 32, and then he elaborates Psalm 32 and explains its meaning by appealing to Genesis 15, 16, and 17. We'll see that more clearly in a moment. What is Paul doing? He's teaching us how we ought to interpret Scripture. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let God's Word come and shine light on God's Word. That's what Paul's doing here. Again, I'm not going to elaborate that, but keep it in mind. You'll see it as we go through. Abraham is the paradigm for us. The example held up as the kind of person that God counts righteous. We want to see this under three headings this morning. First, Abraham was justified by faith apart from circumcision. We see this in verses 9 and 10. In those two verses, Paul sets forth three rhetorical questions, questions that he intends to probe into our thinking so that we'll be set up to see how we can understand the person, who it is, that God justifies. He's pitting Abraham's faith against Abraham's circumcision. And he does this so that we will be very clear on who it is that receives the blessing of justification? After that first question in verse 9, look at the answer he gives in verse, or begins in verse, at the end of verse 9, he says, faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. It was faith that resulted in Abraham receiving righteousness. Now he's already made this point in verses 1 through 5, and that's why he says now in verse 9, for we say, I've just said it. And he said it multiple times, and he's going to keep saying it, that the only way anybody gets right with God is through faith. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. We've mentioned this before, but that word counted is an important word. It is an accounting word. It comes from the world of accounting. It means to reckon. It means to impute. It was used to describe the keeping of records for commercial accounts, debits, And credits, and so if you have a plus counted to your account, then you have credited to your account that which you didn't have before. That's what Paul has in mind here. What he's saying then is that righteousness was imputed to Abraham through faith. God credited Abraham with righteousness through the faith that Abraham had in God's promised provision. Now, Abraham, again, is the classic example of a man who is right with God. A man whom God justified. None of the Jewish readers that Paul was addressing in the church at Rome would have questioned this. If you'd asked them, well, who's the, the most righteous man? Who's the man that is the great example that we should follow? Who's the father of our faith? They would have all recognized Abraham to be the answer to that question. Well, the question we need to ask that Paul sets before us next then is, okay, if Abraham is the great example, the paradigm of the righteous man in God's sight, how did that happen? How did he get that status? And What did he do to earn that designation? He makes this point by first asking two questions. Do you see it in verse 10? How then was it, the righteousness, counted to him, to Abraham? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised. Not after he was circumcised. Verse 10 goes on to say, It was not after, but before he was circumcised. What is Paul doing? He's appealing to Old Testament history here in order to make a theological point. He's looking at the timeline of Abraham and God's dealings with Abraham so that we can understand how and when God dealt with Abraham that resulted in his status as justified before God. And he does this so that you and I might understand who receives the blessings of justification. Who can get in on this? Who can be counted righteous before God? Abraham's example teaches us this. So Paul refers to what God did in Abraham's life as it's recorded in Genesis 15, 16, and 17. Earlier Don read a portion of Genesis chapter 15. If you go to Genesis 17 and go backwards, you'll see the point that Paul is making that God justified Abraham before he was circumcised. Because in Genesis chapter 17, we have a record of Abraham being circumcised. Genesis chapter 17, verse 24 says he was 99 years old when he was circumcised. It says on that same day, Genesis 17, 25, that his son Ishmael, who was born of Hagar, the servant of Abraham, was 13 years old and he also was circumcised. So Abraham and Ishmael were circumcised on the same day. Abraham was 99 years old. Ishmael was 13 years old. That's Genesis 17. You go back to Genesis 15 when God announces His covenant with Abraham. And in those verses that were read earlier for us, especially verse 6, when we see that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, that that happened before Ishmael was even conceived. So the declaration of Abraham being counted righteous in God's sight, happened at least 14 years before Abraham, together with his son Ishmael, received circumcision. This timeline then teaches us that circumcision, that Jewish ritual that was commanded by God, has nothing to do with justification. Doing what God required in that ritual could not, did not, never had anything to contribute to being made right with God. It couldn't be the case since Abraham was justified at least 14 years before he was circumcised. The only way that God ever has or ever will receive sinners and accept them as righteous in his sight is by grace through faith plus nothing. You can't do anything to earn it. You can't accomplish something that will get you into the status that we see Abraham enjoyed. So Abraham was justified by faith apart from circumcision. Well, if that's the case, then what was the point of his being circumcised? We see this in verse 11. Abraham was circumcised as a sign and a seal of his justification. You look at the first part of verse 11. Paul says, Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. A sign. What does a sign do? A sign signifies something. A sign isn't the reality. It points to the reality. So when you're driving down the interstate and you see a sign that there's a gas station, you don't just stop at the sign and expect to fill your tank up with gasoline. But rather you say, okay, the sign's pointing to the reality that there is a place that I can put gasoline in my automobile. Well, the sign of circumcision signified God's gracious provision of salvation. The salvation that Abraham already possessed before he received the sign. Listen to the way William Hendrickson Explains it, he says. A sign and the thing signified are generally closely related. Thus, in the present case, the cutting away of the foreskin (circumcision) suggests and symbolizes the, the excision of guilt and pollution of sin; hence, justification, and closely cl- connected with it, sanctification. Abraham received the inner justification, the the inner Declaration of God's righteousness. So before God, he was counted righteousness. He had that reality. He had that thing that was to be signified. And it was then later that he got the sign indicating the reality signified. So circumcision was given to him as a sign, but it was also given to him as a seal. As a seal, circumcision authenticated or guaranteed the trustworthiness of God's promise to grant Abraham righteousness Through faith. That's what a seal does. A a seal testifies. A seal gives assurance. In in ancient times. Whether that was a seal that would be put on a letter from a king. When he would take his signet ring. And put it in uh, melted wax over the seal of the letter. and, And put his imprint on it. So that people would know this has been sealed by the king. Or if you remember when Jesus was buried. Pilate had the tomb sealed. Certified. Authenticated that his body, dead body, was inside the tomb. Well, that's what a seal does. Our text says, Abraham received circumcision as a sign and a seal of the righteousness that he already possessed by faith, even when he was still uncircumcised. The point is that the right of circumcision was in no way the basis on which God justified Abraham. He was circumcised after he had been justified. And that circumcision was given to him to signify the spiritual reality of being made right with God. And as an assurance that through faith in God's promised provision, he was indeed counted righteous in God's sight. Well, there are important lessons for us in this teaching of the Apostle Paul, the way that he makes his argument. One, we need to understand that our acts of obedience do not contribute to our being justified before God our acts of obedience our efforts to obey do not contribute to the basis on which God counts us righteous verse 5 of this chapter did you hear it Paul says we've got to trust the one who justifies the ungodly what kind of people get justified only ungodly people. If that offends you and you think, well, I'm not going to admit to being ungodly, well, then you are putting yourself outside of the provision of God in justification because the only kind of people He justifies are ungodly people. People who bring no righteousness to the table. People who cannot provide what He requires but are completely dependent upon righteousness outside of themselves. Our efforts to obey God's commandments add nothing to God's acceptance of us and counting us righteous. Secondly, our acts of obedience, though they do not contribute to our justification, are not therefore unimportant. Just because they can't earn us righteousness doesn't mean that they have no place in our lives. When acts of obedience are done in faith, as they're done as a result of our believing, they demonstrate that we have indeed been made right with God. So while we're justified by faith apart from works, the faith that justifies us works. It doesn't just stay alone. This is the whole point of James chapter 2. When the, uh, the James writes that faith without works is dead. The, the faith that saves works. And if you say you have faith, oh yeah, I'm justified before God, and you don't care what God says, James says, you don't have saving faith. Whatever kind of faith you've got, it's not the kind the Bible commends as being necessary to make you right with God by trusting Christ. If you have saving faith, that kind of faith, then your life will orient toward speaking listening to what the Lord says as He speaks to us in His Word about what it is that He has for us, the revelation of His will. So there are two opposite and equally deadly errors that we must avoid falling into as we think about this truth. On the one hand, we must not so emphasize faith in a way that it causes us to dismiss works as having no place in salvation. Works do have a place In salvation. Obedience does have a place in salvation. It's just not the foundation. It's not the basis. On which God accepts us. But rather they are the fruit. Of a life that has been accepted by God. That's one error we must avoid. But on the other hand. We must not so emphasize works. In a way that makes us dilute the teaching. That we're justified by grace alone. Through faith alone. God accepts us not because of what we do. God accepts us because of what Jesus has done. And what Jesus has done is once and forever. It's finished. So you could never be more justified than you are at the moment you trust Jesus Christ as Lord. You'll never be counted more righteous in God's sight than at the moment you turn from your sin and you bow to Jesus. And you can't diminish the righteousness that Jesus has accomplished for sinners. Abraham's example teaches us that It's equally wrong to think that any works, including baptism, Lord's Supper, in any way would make us accept God or to think that we can be right with God while just being completely indifferent to the commands, including baptism and the Lord's Supper. So, you want to be right with God? Then trust the provision that He makes for sinners in Jesus Christ. Look away from yourself. Quit depending upon the things that you do or that you've done or that you intend to do. And begin to depend completely on Christ. Give yourself up to Christ. Rest in Him. Hope in Him. Believe that He's done everything necessary for somebody like you to be accepted by God. When God says that whoever believes in the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved, He is making a promise. And for you to be saved, for you to be justified, you must believe that promise. You must take God at His word. And if you'll trust Christ with that kind of simple faith, then you will be counted righteous in His sight. There's there's no sin that will ever be charged against you again. You won't have to live in the terror Of having to pay for your sin. Because you can be assured that your Lord whom you're trusting has once and forever paid for your sin by his death on the cross. If you're already trusting Christ, then you are a believer and Jesus is your Lord. And so I want to ask you, well then are you living in submission to his Lordship? Are you obeying his commandments? if Christ is your Lord have you been baptized to declare his lordship in your life have you said as a believer in Christ I publicly make known my union with him by obeying him in this call this command that he gives to be baptized the scripture says repent and be baptized it's the responsibility of anyone and everyone who hears this good news and so If you count yourself a Christian, if you say Jesus is my Lord, you're counting on Christ, you're trusting Him, and yet you have not been baptized, friend? I would ask you, why not? Why not? Do you think it's okay? It's not okay. Uh, Because you can't make yourself right with God by being baptized or doing anything else doesn't mean that you're free to disregard what the Lord whom you depend upon calls you to be and do. Jesus himself said it in Luke chapter 6 verse 36. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do the things which I say. Baptism and the Lord's Supper do not make us justified before God. But for believers, they demonstrate, they signify, they authenticate the promise that God counts us righteous for Christ's sake as we trust Christ for salvation. So Abraham was justified by faith apart from circumcision. He was circumcised as a sign and a seal of his justification. And then finally we see in the last part of verse 11 and in verse 12 that Abraham is the father of all who believe like he believed. In the last part of verse 11 and verse 12, Paul gives two reasons that God dealt with Abraham the way that he did. Listen to it in the middle of verse 11. The purpose talking about his circumcision, was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Verse 12. And, another purpose, to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So, the first reason that he was circumcised after he was justified is so that he can be the father of those who have never been circumcised and believe in Christ. So you don't have to become a Jew in order to be accepted by God. When he refers to those who have not been circumcised, he's referring to the Gentiles, he's referring to the nations. Those who are not privileged like the Old Testament Israelites were. They they had not received God's law. They had not received the prophets. They had not received the covenants. But they can be received by God by turning from sin and trusting Christ the way Abraham did. This statement would have been a shock to first century Jews because as the gospel ran in the first century and many of those Jews were converted, they had some mistaken ideas that had to be eradicated. And some of those early ideas were, well, you've got to be circumcised if you're going to be saved. Yeah, we need Christ, but we need the Jewish customs as well. We know this is the case because this is the whole reason that the Jerusalem Council was called. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 15. The leaders of the churches had to come together and try to settle this question. Do you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? Can Gentiles go straight to God through Jesus without having to segue into Judaism first? In Acts chapter 15, 1, we're given the reason for the conference being called in the first place. It says, some men came down to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were, from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you become circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, there it is. There it is. You've got to have these Old Testament requirements, these Old Testament rituals in your life along with faith in Jesus. And so the Jerusalem Council was called. Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, others went there in order to see what it is the Spirit was saying to the church at this early stage of its existence. Is it true? You can't be saved unless you're circumcised. Is that true? Well, through their deliberation, through their study, through their prayer, through their looking over the Old Testament, through their seeing what God was doing, through the testimonies of those who, as Gentiles, had been converted, they concluded, no, the Spirit's making it plain. You don't have to be circumcised to be saved. Is trust Christ. Believe the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So this first reason that is given as to why, Paul, why God dealt with Abraham the way that he did was to make it plain that uncircumcised people, people who were not privileged religiously can be justified. God justifies the ungodly. You have to clean up your act. You're going to have to do things. You have to see what God's done and believe that incredibly good news that there's a Savior for sinners, that Jesus has done everything necessary to make you right with God and trust Him. The second purpose is given in verse 12 at the end so that He could be the father of the circumcised who walk in Abraham's footsteps of faith. That statement would also have been a shock To many Jews of Paul's day because they prided themselves as being Abraham's children they were circumcised they had the covenants they had the prophets they had the Old Testament law and so they necessarily were Abraham's children we see this attitude exposed by Jesus in John chapter 8 when some of the Jews came to him and they began to get incensed at the things he was saying and the implications of what he was saying and they said wait a minute we're not slaves, we're Abraham's children. And it's fascinating, you know, Jesus, gentle, meek, and mild, looks at him and he says, no, reality, you're the children of the devil. It just tells them straight up. They had the bloodline, they had the rituals, but they missed the essential ingredient that Abraham had, and that was trusting God for the provision of grace and salvation. And so he says, you're not children of Abraham. You see, it's it's not a matter of who your parents are. It's not a matter of your lineage, your genealogy. It doesn't matter where you came from. To be a child of Abraham requires more than being in his bloodline. It means having Abraham's faith. Being circumcised, being a Jew, it's not enough apart from faith, none of that matters. It's the same thing that Paul teaches elsewhere. Three times in his letters, in the letter to 1 first, first Corinthians and Galatians, he says, circumcision means nothing, uncircumcision means nothing. The, the, the point Paul's making here is look, whether you've had religious advantages, whether you've had religious disadvantages, whether you grew up in a home that taught you the Bible and you went to church every Sunday, or whether you've never darkened the doors of church. Here is the way that God will accept you as righteous. He'll grant you righteousness. It's not by what you've done, what you do, what you plan to do. It's by trust. Trusting Jesus Christ as Lord. Man, that's great news. I mean, that's really good news. If you stop and think about your own life and you... Let the Word of God evaluate you and see how far short we fall from what God requires. You think, what hope is there for the likes of me? Here it is. Trust Jesus Christ. God's done it all. What you need has been provided. If you'll renounce yourself, your sin, you'll quit living the way you've been living, trying to make things work on your own. And bow to God and say, God, I take it your word. Jesus Christ is Lord. He will count you righteous. This is amazing news. Uh, This is the point that Paul is making by holding up Abraham as the epitome of faith from the Old Testament. He is the spiritual father of all who believe. Circumcised, uncircumcised. Two different groups in the first century. What Paul says here and what he will teach elsewhere in his letters is those two groups become one when they turn from sin and trust Jesus as Lord. Doesn't matter if you're circumcised, doesn't matter if you're uncircumcised. What matters is that by faith you're depending upon the righteousness that God's provided in Christ. So again, I just want to ask you, are you trusting Christ? Are you depending on Jesus? I'm not asking you if you acknowledge Him not asking you if you say, yeah, you know, I, I know who Jesus is and I respect him. I'm not asking you that. I'm asking if you have faith in Jesus the way the Apostle Paul sets it before us in this text. Are you living in a relationship with Jesus that can best be described as trust? Are you walking in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham? Can you say, yeah, I'm dependent on Christ. It makes the difference in the way that I think. It makes a difference in my plans, my aspirations, my desires, my choices. Is Christ your Lord? What what were the footsteps of Abraham? You read Abraham's life. You know, he he had a lot of missteps. (laughs) We sometimes think, oh, Abraham, the paragon of faith. Well, he he is... Described as that, he's held up to us as that. But you look at the faith of Abraham, and it wasn't just like this. Abraham had some bad falls, had some bad dips. But he was a man who staked his life on the provision that God said would be his through faith. Let me just read to you from Hebrews chapter 11, some of the verses that commend the faith of Abraham. Hebrews 11 verse 8 says this, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he, was, that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. Living in the tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and is God, imagine that. God speaks and says, okay, I want you to leave everything familiar and go down this road. He said, well, I've never been down that road before. You know, trust me. Trust That's what it means to walk by faith. Now, that doesn't mean that we should expect God to speak to us in the clouds or in an audible voice like he did to Abraham. But he's spoken to us in his word. And so what does it mean for us today to trust God, to walk in the way of faith as Abraham did? It means to take God at his word. It means you open the Bible, you read it, you say, Okay. This is what God says to me. He's promised this for me. He's not ever going to leave me or forsake me. He's promised that that in my weakness, His strength is made perfect. He's promised that He's going to work everything together for my good. Because I love Him and He's called me according to His purpose. And, And I look at my life right now and I look at the circumstances and I think, I don't see how this is good or going to work for good. But I'm going to take God at His word. You you see what he calls you to be. To say no to ungodliness. No to sin. Say yes to the way that is right and good. And you say, oh God, give me strength to walk in this way. It's hard. It's contrary to my friends, my family, the things I learned, how I've grown accustomed to being. But at your word, at your word, I'm going to live by faith. Hebrews goes on in verse 17, chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which figuratively speaking he did receive him back. You remember that story, Genesis 22? God tells Abraham, take the son of promise up on a hill and sacrifice him. Abraham thinks, this is, you told me I'm going to be blessed through Isaac, and now Isaac's going to die at my hand. What was going on in his mind? Well, Hebrews tells us what was going on in his mind. I don't understand this, but God's the God who raises the dead. God can raise him from the dead. Brothers and sisters, we have so much clearer understanding of that than Abraham could have had because we have a risen Savior. God has raised Jesus from the dead. So you look at the pathway that His Word prescribes for you to walk and you think, this feels like death. I don't see a way back from this. Well, if you die, guess what? You die in the hands of the God who raises the dead. And so you can, by faith... Trust Him. You can depend upon Him because Jesus Christ stands as an everlasting testimony to that truth that Abraham could just barely see through types and shadows, but now has been revealed forever that God raises the dead. Knowing that, our faith is strengthened. So what is faith? It's simply taking God at His word. It's believing Him, trusting Him, believing that He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, into the world to save sinners. Believing that Jesus has done everything God requires of us. Counting on His righteousness. The righteousness we need. He earned by His life of obedience. The payment of sin that we deserve to pay. He has once and for all paid for through His death on the cross. And so you trust Jesus. And you believe God. You take God at His word when He says that those who are in Christ are not condemned. Those who are in Christ are new creations. Those who are in Christ can be assured that they are counted righteous for His sake. And you live like that. And you get up and you do it again tomorrow. And you keep living like that. That's what it means to be a child of Abraham. Justification belongs to anyone who believes. Friend, that includes you. If you're here without faith in Christ today. I want you to know we're delighted you're here. But we want you to know. We don't want you to just be here. We want you to to receive this good news. There's a savior. There's forgiveness. There's right standing with your creator. And it is available in Christ. And so I plead with you. I call upon you to quit doing whatever it is you've been doing. All the things you've been trying to make life work. Just renounce them and trust Jesus Christ. God will accept you for Christ's sake. Young people, it's true for you. It's true for you. Some of you have grown up in the sound of the gospel in your home and in church all your life. You know the answers to the questions. But it might be you're thinking, oh, I'm just not old enough. Or, you know, I need to understand a little bit more. need to live a little bit more. This is God's word to you. It's God's word to you. There's a savior for sinners. There's righteousness that God provides to young people who will turn from sin and trust Jesus. Don't wait another day. Don't wait until you get a certain age. Today, right now, come to Christ. Believe Christ. Trust Him. God will count you righteous in the same way that He did Abraham. And you'll become, as you live by the faith, the same kind of faith Abraham had, you'll become a child of Abraham and more importantly, a child of God brothers and sisters this good news it's true not just for us as we are trusting Christ it is true for our friends it is true for our neighbors it is true for our co-workers so what should we do we should explain this good news to people we should tell people that there's a Savior they don't have to live with a sense of foreboding about God and under condemnation because Jesus Christ came into the world he did everything necessary in order that people like me you our coworkers our friends our neighbors our relatives can be counted righteous in God's sight how by turning from sin and trusting Jesus oh brothers and sisters we ought to be people who take this good news and spread it far and wide because we just cannot get over it justifications available for anyone, for everyone who will believe. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this good news. We thank you for the way that you save sinners, for providing everything necessary in your Son, the Lord Jesus. I pray that you would help us to really believe what you say, to take you at your word. God, I pray for those here today who walked through the doors struggling to believe or or thinking it's too good to be true, would you not by your spirit just open their understanding, show them Christ, call them to yourself, grant them faith, turn them from sin so that they might be counted righteous through faith in your Son. Help us as your people to believe this message, to proclaim it far and wide for Jesus' sake. Amen.